Well, it is exciting to be back with y'all. Uh, I know it's been a couple months since I've, I've been able to teach. I had a lot of uh, unfortunate work stuff I had to take care of, and I'm so glad that it is finally slowing down so I can open the Word of God with y'all again. And it's great to be back after Christmas and New Year's. There's a lot of people who weren't here for a couple weeks, and it's just a joy to be back in the fellowship of other believers again. Now, this morning, we're going to be going over the parable of the unforgiving servant. Uh, that's going to be in Matthew 18. It's going to be verses 21 through 35. So go ahead and be turning there or swiping there if you use something digital. Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. And as you head that way, I want you to prepare yourself to do some hard thinking this morning. Because this section, Matthew 18, is a particularly difficult passage. It's not hard because it uses a lot of metaphors or some symbolism like you get in uh, passages on the end times. And it's not hard because you really have to read it deeply to understand what God is trying to say through it. Uh, in fact, the theme is extremely obvious as you read it and it can be summarized into a single word and that word is the command to forgive. There we go. To forgive. But, uh, unfortunately, there's no such thing as an English teacher who would accept a theme as a single word. So we're going to flesh this out a little bit, and we're going to see that the theme of today's passage is that God commands you to forgive the repentant Christian completely and limitlessly. No, the reason this passage is such a difficult passage is simply because we know it so well. Uh, I doubt there is anyone here this morning that has not at least heard this parable one time, if not over and over again. And the problem with hearing a passage over and over again is that as people, at least for me, we get into the mindset of something that's familiar to us is something that's mundane or commonplace to us. And as a result, we miss out on the magnificent glory that God is revealing this passage. So as we read it this morning, I want you to do a little experiment, a little exercise. I want you to imagine that you are a new Christian who has never, ever read this passage before. That this morning is the first time you are opening God's word to this passage. So hopefully you're all in Matthew 18 now. Let's go ahead and read God's word together. Matthew 18, starting in verses 21, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. It reads, Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as... Seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. 
So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now this passage is the very end of a discussion that started back at the beginning of Matthew chapter 18. And remember that Jesus, at the beginning of Matthew 18, Jesus and the disciples had just come back to Capernaum, and it turned out that the disciples had been arguing on the way there. They had a, they had a question that they were arguing about, and when they got to Capernaum, uh, they came and they asked Jesus the question. Who remembers what the question was that the disciples asked at the beginning of 18, Matthew 18? Yeah. Who was the greatest? Yeah, the disciples were arguing which one of us is the greatest disciple of Jesus. And Jesus used this argument to start off a special time of teaching with his disciples concerning our relationships with one another in light of our relationship with God. Or another way to say that would be Jesus begins to teach them that when we consider God's love for our brothers and sisters in Christ— it should move us to do specific things for those brothers and sisters. And as I read through Matthew 18, I actually noted about four broad commands Jesus gave his disciples that we should be doing to one another in light of the love God has for us. In verses 3 to 4, we see that we should be willing to be a servant at all. Uh, in verses 5 through 9, we should be willing to go out of our way to not cause one of our brothers to stumble through our Christian liberties. In verses 10 through 14, we see that we should be willing to go out of our way to bring back a brother or sister who is starting to stray into sin. And tied with that, as Alejandro taught last time, in verses 15 to 20, we should be willing to engage in church discipline for the purpose of restoring fellowship with sinning believers. I want you to notice how each one of these four commands here uh, is Jesus building up on the idea that the greatest among them will be the servant to all of them. It starts with a willingness just to serve, to get into that mindset that you should be a servant, and he builds on that and gets all the way to church discipline, saying that because you're willing to be a servant to everyone, you should be willing to go out, engage with them, seek them out, and love them for the purpose of them repenting and being restored to fellowship with you. And that is the beauty of church discipline. The point of it is not to give the pastors and elders a stick which they use to beat the parishioners of the church with. The purpose of it is that it requires a humble heart. Oh, it requires a humble heart. Not just on the part of the one repenting, because that's an issue. You want to sit in your sin, you got pride, you are in it, and you also don't want to deal with the embarrassment that comes before standing before people and saying, I was wrong, I was sinning. But it also requires a humble heart from the one rebuking the sinner. Because once the sinner repents, it is our responsibility to completely forgive them and restore the fellowship that we once enjoyed with them. And Peter noticed that this is what Jesus was saying. Because when you look at him, he has a question on his mind. I love Peter. Peter listens so intently when the Lord speaks. And it's Peter who comes time and time again and says, Hey, you said this thing, and I was kind of wondering what did you mean when you said it? And we know that this is on his mind right now, because in verse 15, we see that Jesus said, If your sinner, or if your brother sins against you. And in verse 21, Peter repeats this back to Jesus. And he says, Well, how often, how often will my brother sin against me? And I have to forgive him. And if you're taking notes, this is going to be the first main point uh, in today's outline. 
And that's that Peter's question reveals the underwhelming extent of man's willingness to forgive. The underwhelming extent of man's forgiveness. Because Peter doesn't just ask the question, how many times should I forgive my brother? He hazards a guess. He says, seven times? Seven, seven seems like a good number. Yeah. Okay. I, I know. We talked about this already. Most people here have read this passage before, right? Is this, a, is this legitimately the first time anyone's heard this passage? Out of curiosity. It's okay. We all read it once. Okay, yeah. Everyone here, we've, we've heard this passage. We know how it goes. But I want you to imagine you've never read this before. And I want you to pretend... Like, you open up your Bible, you read it, and you stop here to consider Paul's question. You look out the window, and you see the beautiful sunrise, and you treasure this glorious moment of stillness, like I'm sure each and every one of y'all do every day, right? You wake up, you see the sunrise, you read your Bible, you drink some coffee. No? Okay, me neither. I do mine in the evening. But let's assume that's when you do it. And you think about Paul's statement, and you go, you know what? Seven times. Yeah, that seems like a fair number. From a human mindset, I know in my own heart that when I consider how willing I am to forgive someone for the same offense over and over and over again, seven seems like a pretty generous number. I mean, think about it. How willing are you personally to forgive your brother or sister when they do that one thing? You know the one thing. I don't need to tell you the one thing. You know it. Ben's smiling. He knows it. John? No, I was looking at Ben too. He knows it. How willing are you to forgive that? Or is it more likely that once they do it again, your response is to shout at them? Or to be mean back to them in some way? Maybe passive-aggressively. Maybe you're not a pusher or a shouter. You do something passive-aggressive. You get back to them. In fact... We even have in our own society phrases that explicitly tell us how we should be unwilling to forgive others, don't we? Tell me if you've heard this one before. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, how does it end? Shame on me. Our very society is built on the idea that, you know what, forgiveness should be a very limited deal. You know, you fool me once, all right, you got me. But from now on, I'm going to remember for the rest of my life that you fooled me in that way, and you better believe I'm not going to be tricked again. And likewise, at Paul's time, or excuse me, Peter's time, the teaching of the rabbis was that you should forgive someone three times for the same offense. But the fourth time, no. No forgiveness is given at the fourth time. Just three. So when Peter responds, he goes, you know what? teaching of the day, three times. I'm going to double that number, and then I'll add one more just for good measure. And you would think, yeah, that seems pretty legitimate from the worldly standards. Peter must be really, really great to be willing to forgive twice the amount that society tells him that he should be forgiving. But the truth is, Peter's response, excuse me, Peter's question and saying seven times, only highlights how truly pitiful our willingness to forgive one another is. Because in verse 22, we're going to see the second point on our outline, and that is, uh, excuse me, I'm jumping ahead of myself. 
Uh, yeah, the second point in our outline, Christ's answer reveals the unparalleled standard of God's forgiveness. In verse 22 we read, Jesus responds to Peter and says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Or if you have the NESB, it says 70 times, seven times. How do you think you'd feel reading that for the very first time? Jesus' response was that Peter, by doubling the number of times that society at large said we should forgive, was still grossly falling short of God's standard for forgiveness. And Jesus, he's not trying to set a literal upper limit right now. Uh, he's not literally saying 77 times, the 78th, don't worry guys, you finally get to stop forgiving at number 78. Or 491, if you're doing 70 times 7, don't worry. Once you get to 491, you get a stop. Uh, this is meant to be a perpetual, ongoing willingness to forgive our brothers and sisters who come to us in repentance. And, and we really get an example, or we really get a side of this in Luke 7, verses 13, or excuse me, Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. In it, Luke is giving a very short summary of the exchange we're seeing right here in Matthew 18. We get a long summary in Matthew 18. Uh, in Luke 17, two sentences. The first sentence in Luke uh, verse 17, verse 3, it says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. That's church discipline. That is a one-sentence summary of church discipline. You go to him, you rebuke him, he repents, you forgive. In verse 4, we get a summary of what we're going over this morning. He says, And if he sins against you, notice the difference here. One, we're talking about he sins in general. That's church discipline. And then the other, we're talking about specifically, you are the one that's being sinned against. If, there's, if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So notice how in this summary, each new day, we are renewing our willingness to forgive our brother or sister who comes up to us in repentance. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, sometimes when I read the scriptures, uh, I kind of look for the, the gray area. I go, well, do I, do I really have to follow this one, Lord? Is there maybe some wiggle room for me to kind of, maybe in this one circumstance, I don't need to? Or, or maybe there's a loophole over here. Have you really thought this instruction through, Lord? And thankfully, God knows my heart. And God knows the heart of men. So we don't just get the one-sentence summary in Luke 17. He gives us this beautiful parable here in Matthew 18. And that's going to be point three of the outline. We're going to examine this parable, and we're going to examine it in six different parts for us to understand what he means when we have this instruction that if someone sins against you personally, you are to forgive them. So part one is the slave's unpayable debt. And this is in verses 23 through 25, which says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one of was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payments be made. Now, who remembers what a parable is? Yeah, so we use human characters, 
to teach a larger spiritual point. So, do you think that the king and the servant are literally some king and servant in Jesus' time? No? No, 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 no. Who is the king in this parable? Who do you think? God. God, yes. It's the Sunday school answer. The answer is God. Who then do you think the servant is? If the king is God, who's the servant? Someone on this side. Can you see a hand or I'm going to randomly pick one? Yes, you got it. Absolutely correct. We are the servant. So I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. The king is God. We as Christians are the servant. The king is calling his servants, or depending on translation, might say slaves. And honestly, I think slaves is a better translation because in Jesus' society at the time, high-ranking court officials were referred to as being the king's slaves. So when we read that this slave or this servant had stolen 10,000 talents or had a 10,000-talent debt, uh, understand this was a high-ranking court official. This wasn't the stable hand who had just borrowed too much getting the latest you know, 70-inch plasma TV. No, this was a high-ranking court official, and it's very likely that he embezzled this money from the king. Maybe he was a tax collector, and he was supposed to give the taxes to the king, and instead he kept it for himself, and he wasted it. 10,000 talents worth. No gasps? Oh, I'm sorry. Who here uses the denarii, the shekel, and the talent to buy and sell things today? Really? No one? Okay, so you know exactly how much a talent is worth. It's my favorite form of currency. Well, for the rest of us, who's not Noel, let's explain what a talent is. How much did this slave actually owe? Uh, a talent was about 75 pounds of gold. And it was considered to be about 15 years of labor for the average worker. And this slave had stolen an amount equivalent to 150,000 years worth of labor. If he were somehow able to dedicate 100% of his salary, so he didn't need to worry about food or clothes or housing or anything, 100% of his salary went to just paying off this debt, it would take him over 2,100 lifetimes to pay it back assuming an average working lifespan of about 70 years. Yeah? How do you even steal that much? Uh, well, I mean, taxes are a lot of money. I remember that when David was building the temple, uh, it said that he gave about 70,000 talents of silver, I believe it was, and 30,000 talents of gold. So as the taxes come in, I mean, you can get that much money. But that's the next point that we're actually going to get to here. Uh, just, just to put it into modern perspective, when we talk about him stealing 10,000 talents uh, in modern currency, this, considering the average salary in Fort Worth right now is about $70,000 a year, he stole $10.5 billion from the king. And yeah, there, there's a jaw-dropping response. I was wondering why no one cared about 10,000 talents. There you go, $10.5 billion dollars. Uh, was stolen. And that is a jaw-dropping amount. But I think even this number is really missing the point of what Jesus is saying in this parable. Because Jesus didn't choose these numbers at random. At the time, in Roman culture, a talent was the absolute largest denomination of money there was. 
and 10,000 was the highest number they bothered going to with their writing. So to say that he owed 10,000 talents is to say that he owed the biggest number there was of the highest amount of currency there was. And this is the fact that uh, he owed a truly, utterly impossible amount that he could never hope to pay back. And since we know that this parable is being used by Jesus to demonstrate how much God has forgiven you and I, we need to recognize that this is the condition each one of us are in before we come to belief in Christ and have our sins forgiven. We had a debt of sin that no amount of so-called good deeds could ever hope to pay off. In fact, when you say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm a good enough person, I think I do a lot of good things. No, Isaiah 64, 6 tells us, but before we came to faith in Christ, all our good deeds, all our good righteousness, all our acts that we did were like filthy rags. And we think about a filthy rag, and maybe some of your, your dads, maybe they, they do some car work, and you think about an oily rag, it's kind of filthy. That's not the rag we're talking about, guys. Um, I've done some work at wastewater treatment plants. Those are the places where all your waste goes to at the end of the day. And sometimes hygienic items get flushed down the toilet and they have to put up a bar screen to make sure that these items don't clog up the pumps. And the bar screens, they get filled with debris and they have a rake that comes down and lifts it up and they put it in a trash can and go to landfill. I've seen people take $20 bills out of this mud ball of waste. So when it talks about filthy rag, that's what I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine them reaching in and grabbing a 20 out, and that $20 bill is covered with your waste. And I'm not just talking about the stuff that goes down the toilet. This is your dishwashers and your washing machines. This is the Kleenex that you had a bloody nose and you dropped it into. All our good deeds were like filthy rags in the sight of God before we came to faith. In fact, Ephesians 2.3 says that we live in accordance with whatever we wanted to do, whatever our mind was set to, that is what we pursued, and we were children of wrath. Before we came to Christ, we were drowning in our debt, and we were daily adding to our debt, stealing the praise that rightfully belonged to God and giving it to ourselves instead. And maybe that's where you still are today. Maybe you've yet to humbly come to God confessing that you've made yourself your idol to be worshipped, recognizing that it is Christ's death and his death alone that purchases us forgiveness. And if that's the case, I've got bad news for you. I've got good news, but first, I've got bad news. And the bad news is found in verse 25. As the king pronounces judgment on the wicked servant's death, if you have yet to come to faith in Christ, you too stand in judgment before the king. Now, at the end of verse 25, we see that this man's family was actually going to be sent to jail along with him. Now, this might make us give us pause. We're like, okay, Jesus is talking about a bigger parable here. My sin is the debt, and my family's being sold into debt along with me. Wait, does, does that mean my unbelief can send my family to hell? Do you think that's what the parable is trying to say? No, it's not. Okay, if you stretch a parable too far, it's going to break. Remember, a parable, we're describing a larger spiritual issue here. And this point of this statement that his family's being sold along into slavery with him 
to pay off the debts, that his assets are going to be seized and liquidated, all that he owns. The point is that the king's punishment is appropriate to the servant's crime. That this wasn't some extravagant punishment he was receiving. This was the absolutely correct punishment that he was supposed to receive for the crime he had committed. Because in the the society of the time, it was acceptable practice that if someone owed you a large amount of money, you were allowed to sell off their assets. I mean, they had to owe you a really large amount. It had to be greater than the amount that you would get for selling them into slavery. So he was allowed by law to do this. So that's the bad news. The good news is coming up soon, but first, in verse 26, we see the second part of the parable Jesus gives, and that's the slave's unbelievable uh, request. Verse 26 says, So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Now, if I were writing, say, an Elizabethan romance novel, and I wanted to describe this request, I'd probably use the phrase unmitigated gall, or perhaps the sheer audacity or impudence of such a request. This slave had absolutely no chance of ever paying this amount back, yet he falls before the king, and he has the gall to say, I'll do it, I will pay it back somehow. But I want you to notice something in this claim. The slave is not being deceitful. The slave is not trying to manipulate the king into having compassion for him. The slave knows that he is in the wrong and that the king's punishment is just. And he falls before him in genuine repentance. And seeing the genuine nature of the slave's pleas, we get to the good news in the third part of Jesus' parable. And that's in verse 27, the king's unparalleled forgiveness. It says, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. I wish we could truly all read this for the first time this morning. As brand new Christians, keenly aware of how great our own sin was before God, and that we could, like this servant, relish and how wonderful it must have felt to stand there on his knees saying, I'll do it, I'm sorry, whatever it takes, I will pay you back. And instead of the king saying, all right, you'll pay me back. He instead wipes away the entirety of the $10.5 billion debt this slave had stolen and says it never happened. He treated him as if the entire time he had been faithful instead of wicked. Yeah, yeah. That's a lot. Yeah, it was a lot of money. And that is the good news for every one of us here today who isn't in Christ. I told you there's bad news. The bad news is that you're under the king's judgment. Here's the good news. God forgives everyone who comes to him in genuine repentance. Though the servant had stolen the biggest amount of money, of the biggest amount of currency, the king has pity in the face of genuine repentance and takes the ledger and crosses it all out. In high school, I had a friend who worked with me at Baskin Robbins. And whenever I would tell him the gospel, 
uh, he'd be polite. He'd talk to me about it for a little while. But he'd always end the conversation in unbelief. And one time, he kind of really wanted me to stop presenting. He said, you know what, Matt? You're right. You're right, there's a God. You're right, I'm a sinner. But there is no way God could ever forgive me. I have done too much wrong to ever be forgiven by God. If you're here today and you have not come to faith in Christ, know this and know it fully. There is nothing you have ever done or ever could do that makes you unforgivable for God. Remember that Paul, one of the greatest writers of the New Testament, the most prolific at the very least, Paul hunted down Christians and threw them into jail. Paul rejoiced at the brutal murder of Christians. And yet God called even Paul to repentance. God's forgiveness is available to all who come to him in genuine repentance, regardless of their background, regardless of what you've done, regardless of the sins you've committed. And I pray that if you are here and you've yet to experience this for yourself, that you would come and experience that this morning. Talk to me, talk to one of the elders, talk to Pastor Dusty, talk to your parents, talk to a believing friend, find someone, talk to them, figure out what it is you have to do if there's still any doubt in your heart on what is needed. So that you too can experience this awe-inspiring forgiveness of the King. So for those of us who have experienced that, you can imagine how this slave is feeling right now, to have the entire debt of your sin washed away. And in his joy, we see that in part four of the parable, the slave does something that is unimaginably hypocritical. In verses 28 and 30, or through 30, it says, but when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay off the debt. Now, we've identified that the king is God. We've identified that you are the slave. Who's this new character? Our fellow slaves. Our fellow slaves. Yes, very good, Taylor. Our fellow slaves are, or our fellow Christians is this new slave. Remember, Peter's whole point, the whole point of this parable is Peter asked, if a brother sins against me and he comes and forgives me, how often do I have to forgive him? We are the forgiven slave who goes out and begins to throttle a fellow slave of the king. So let's look at this example. In it, we see a servant goes out, and it's possible that as soon as he left, he made a beeline for this guy. He's like, you know what? Whew. Having that debt of mine brought up, reminding me that this other guy has some debt. So I'm going to go and I'm going to talk to him and have him pay me back. Or it's possible that as he left the king, just in the natural course of things, he happened to bump into this other slave that owed him money. But regardless, he goes out. In the course of events, he runs into this other court official, this other slave of the king, who owes him 100 denarii. Now, a denarii was a single silver coin. And it was the average wage that someone would receive for a day's worth of work. So this second slave, he owed about 100 days worth of work to the first slave. And if I were to convert that into modern income, 
he owed, the second slave owed the first slave, around $20,000. Now, I want you to think. Is $20,000 a small amount of money? Depends on your job. <laughs> I would say that even Jeff Bezos would say, $20,000, that's kind of a lot. Uh, no, it is a lot of money. However, like the 10,000 talents, Jesus has chosen this number for a very specific reason. In fact, I would say for two specific reasons. The first is he's creating a contrast between what the first slave owed and what the second slave owes. Uh, the first slave was forgiven an amount that could never, ever, ever be repaid for generations to come. The second slave owes one five hundred thousandths of what the first slave owed. That is 0.000002% of what the first slave owed. And that's an amount, I mean, 20,000 is a lot, but it's an amount that reasonably you could pay that back in, say, 10 years, if all you did was pay 10 denarii every year. And you know, maybe that'd be 15 years if it had interest occurring with it, but 10 to 15 years, that's a reasonable time frame to pay something off. The second reason Jesus chose this number was to show that we are supposed to forgive the really, really big offenses, just as readily as we forgive those tiny offenses. $20,000? is enough to put down a 15% down payment on a modestly sized home. Unless it used to, it's been a while since I looked at the housing market, but at the very least, it used to be enough to put uh, your 15% down payment down on a home. It's enough to buy, right now, a 2013 Ford Mustang with 55,000 miles in good condition, just to pick a random car off the top of my head. It's enough to buy a PlayStation 5, a Nintendo Switch, a really nice gaming laptop, or full-on desktop, along with 100 games for each system, and have plenty of money left over. If Jesus is using money, yeah, Ian? It's not for two Asian replacements on a drag race car. Two. They're really expensive. Yes. That's a lot. I'm, I'm glad I'm not into drag racing. Yeah. It's enough to buy five cartons of eggs. Five cartons of eggs. I think you get a little bit more of that. I think you can actually get maybe a... At the very least, you get 25,079 cent tacos from Taco Bell. So I mean, this, this is a big amount of money, okay? And if Jesus is using money to illustrate the amount of debt that we've accrued against someone else, and he is, then this fellow slave had indeed sinned greatly against the first slave. Sorry, I was pushing the wrong way. Uh, there we go. He sinned greatly against the first slave. And like the first slave, this second slave falls down in an act of genuine repentance for the wrongs he had done to his fellow slave. And interestingly, we see that he pleads almost word for word the exact same words that first slave pled to the king. However, the first slave refuses to forgive him despite having literally just come out of the presence of the king, having been forgiven that insurmountable debt. This is what it looks like every time you and I as Christians refuse to forgive a fellow believer who comes to us in genuine repentance. Now, of course, this hypocrisy, it does not go unnoticed. Which leads us to part five of the parable, the other slave's unrestrained intercession. 
In verse 31, it says, when his fellow slaves or fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. I cannot stress it enough that what we are observing in this parable is what I would call in real life a big, messy, complicated situation. Notice that when the other slaves see this, they do not step in to stop it. He was in his legal right, according to Roman law, to seize someone who owed him money in the point of dragging him before the judge. Jesus is absolutely recognizing in this parable that there will be times in this life when people accrue against you an incredible debt of sin, that they have wronged you bad. They will wrong you to the point that as an outsider looking in, our response as humans, maybe our first response would go, I don't know if I could forgive him in this situation. And yet, we see the appropriate response we are to have when we are the outsiders seeing, a break, uh, seeing this break between two believers. First of all, we should be greatly distressed. Or as the NASB says, uh, deeply grieved. When we see Christians who are unwilling to forgive despite knowing how greatly they've been forgiven themselves, we should be grieved by it. And second, we should take it to the king. Obviously, God doesn't need us to tell him when people sin. God is aware of people's sins. However, the Bible tells us that God is pleased when we come and intercede with him through prayer. In response to this intercession, we come to the last part of the parable, the king's unleashed justice. In verses 32 through 34, it says, Then the master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you plead with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, that master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay his debt. Here we see that the mercy the king formerly gave the first slave is removed. And in his anger, the king throws that wicked slave in jail. Now, do you think this means you can lose your salvation? Is that what the parable is trying to say? Because we see the king removes his, his grace, he removes his forgiveness, and he sends him to jail. Does that mean you can lose your salvation? I need a strong response here. No. no. A whisper. Thank you, Sage. No. No. The Bible is extremely clear on this. You cannot lose your salvation. God will not unsave any believer. Romans 11.29 says that the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. That means impossible to revoke. It cannot be removed. Once God gives you his grace, no one can take that from you. Uh, I also put up John 10, 27 through 29, and John 5, 24. I'll leave that for y'all to look at. These are just three passages that extremely briefly touch on the perseverance of the saints. The Bible is filled with verses like this. God will not take his salvation from you because of your sin. And frankly, let me be extremely clear on this. If there's anyone who has any doubt, because we get doubt as, as Christians, don't we? But am I really saved? Can I lose my salvation? Let me say this to you. If you think you can lose your salvation, you are having far too high a view of your own righteousness, and you're having much too low a view of God's grace. So what does it mean when it talks about the king takes away that forgiveness and throws him to jail? The point is found in verse 35, and this is the final section for this morning's lesson, an unambiguous warning. 
It says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The final point Jesus is making in response to Peter's question about how often we need to forgive one another is that anyone who fails to forgive will not lose their salvation, but will come under God's discipline. The Bible tells us there's no such thing as a father who, does not, who loves his children who does not discipline them. If you are a child of God and you are in a state of sin, you need to expect to come under his discipline. Christians, God has forgiven you for offense after offense that would have condemned you for all eternity to hell. And he forgave you knowing that once you came to him in repentance, once you said, Father, I am a sinner, I need your forgiveness, you would turn around and continue to sin against him. You have absolutely no business not forgiving a Christian who comes to you in genuine repentance. No matter how great someone sins against you, it doesn't even begin to compare to how much you've sinned against God. So how can we apply this passage to our life? Well, first, we can look back to the theme we mentioned at the beginning of the lesson. The whole point. The whole point of Matthew 18, 21 through 35, the parable of the wicked servant is that God commands you to forgive the repentant Christian completely and limitlessly. Colossians 3, 12 and 13 says it so well. It says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Second, if you've wronged someone, you need to go and repent to them. Now, the point of the parable, the whole focus was on the one doing the forgiving, but let's not miss out on the fact that there was another slave, another fellow Christian who had wronged him that also needed to be forgiven. If you have wronged someone, as a Christian, you need to go seek them out and repent to them in genuine repentance. Third, when a fellow believer comes to you repenting, you need to forgive them. I know it's the same as the first one, but this is the whole point, guys. You need to forgive them. It, I get it. When we're wronged, it's hard to be humble enough to love someone enough to be willing to forgive them. It's, it's tempting, isn't it, to dig in our heels and say, yeah, look, I know, I know Matthew said I need to forgive someone who genuinely repents. I don't think they're genuinely repenting right now. You don't get to make that call. The Bible says when someone comes to your repentance, a fellow believer, you are to forgive them. God has commanded you to forgive, and it is vital we do so. Because let me tell you this. Life is but a vapor. And you do not know the pain that comes from having the last words you speak to a fellow believer not being repentance, and then for them to go out and die. But I do. And I would give anything I had in this life for five seconds so that I could have the last words I spoke to him be, I forgive you, instead of I hate you. God has called you to repent. 
Christians, we have gone over a lot of things in Matthew 18. We've talked about making sure we aren't tempting others to sin through our Christian liberties. We've talked about serving one another, about seeking out those who are going astray, about restoring them lovingly through the church discipline to fellowship. And now we've talked about forgiving those who sin against you. To close out this passage, let me read 1 John 4.11. This is the final application for the lesson and a summary of the entire passage. It says, Beloved, if God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we confess that like the wicked servant, we have sinned against you. We have accumulated a debt we could never hope to repay, and yet you, in your indescribable grace, forgave us, wiping away that debt for all time. Father, I pray that we would not then turn around and lash out against those who have sinned against us. Lord, cause us to remember that we too should love one another just as you have loved us, and earnestly forgive them. Father, we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.